Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Boy, this really got me thinking. Who did you want to be like when you were a kid? Who did you want to be like? Uh, So as I was thinking about it, uh, there were different people I wanted to be like. It just depended on what day of the week it was when I was a kid. So for example, uh, I was a huge fan of the Incredible Hulk. Do we have any Incredible Hulk fans out there? You know, there was a line, you know, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. You remember that? That was great. And, and you, wouldn't, you wouldn't like him when he was angry uh, because he became violent and huge and apparently unstoppable. And uh, maybe that's why I wanted to be the Incredible Hulk. I wanted to be violent and huge and, and unstoppable. I don't know. I loved the Incredible Hulk. But then you had your sports heroes. For those of you who are kind of sporty, uh, I was a pitcher. And so you know, I would watch literally the, the motions of the pitchers from the way that they would step back, kind of get their rhythm, the way that they would push off. I mean, I was watching everything. I was really fortunate to get to watch Nolan Ryan when he would pitch for the Texas Rangers. And, just, and that was back when it was like the old Ranger Stadium. They've knocked down like nine of them and built new ones since then. But you could go right down by the bullpen and look in. He was like right there. And I was like, man, that is, that's one of the best, the best of all time. Kind of like Michael Jordan. He's the best of all time. And I know what some of you are thinking out there about LeBron James, but you're just wrong. (laughs) It's not even close. Who'd you want to be like? Who did you want to be like? And then I would get to these with pitching. What was their routine? Like what were the habits that they had just on, on a normal day that made them great, that really set them apart from other people. I wanted to know what that was like, like Mike. Um, There was a a guy, a musician, Lenny Kravitz. Y'all know who I'm talking about? Man, I've always been a huge fan of Lenny Kravitz, but he had a song going back to 1993. Here are the lyrics. I was born long ago. I'm the chosen, I'm the one. I've come to save the day and I won't leave until I'm done. He wrote this about Jesus. I don't know if you know that. That's what the song is about. But there's this one part, you kind of get to the, the lick in the song, we're like, nah, 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 nah. and he says, are you gonna go my way? That's the question. Now he said, if you look around, what you see kind of filling up the world is there's a lot of hate. Jesus was saying, but are you gonna go my way and fill the world up with love? That's what the song was about from Lenny Kraft. This day in rock history brought to you. You are welcome. And then it got me thinking even more when I was going into my doctorate. One of the things, it's kind of different. You know, people will ask, well, where did you go to uh, college? You know, well, I went to Texas A&M. Or I went to the University of something. You fill it in, I don't care. You fill it in. But you get to the point where when you're looking at your doctorate, they ask actually a different question. And the question is less of, hey, where'd you go? And the question was more of, who did you study under? Who was your mentor? Now, I want you to see a little, bit of a, a little bit of a shift there because it's not so much the name of the school as it is the one that you put yourself under. And that's what really mattered. So you wanted to be able to say when you walked out of your doctorate, I studied under and you give the name and they go, okay, that's impressive. So greatness should be a goal for us. Excellence should be our personal standard that as we put ourselves apart, as we separate ourselves every day in the way that we live, the reason that we do it is because 
We wanna be like Jesus. That's the way that he lived. He lived a life that was deeply sacrificial, wasn't it? Um, if you look at it in the Bible, of the 90 or so times that Jesus is talking with people and think like groups in the New Testament, around 60 or so of those times, they refer to him as rabbi or teacher. Now here we are starting the new school year, and some of you that are out of school could probably look at a teacher that said, my life was changed by that teacher. You could probably name somebody like that. But when you're looking at more than 60 something times that Jesus is referred to as a teacher, you kind of get the idea that a teacher is important. Jesus being one of those. Let me, let me look at a couple of passages of scripture today. In Mark chapter one, verses 16 to 20. It says, as he, that is Jesus, passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. That makes sense. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Now that part cracks me up a little bit because Zebedee's like, hey, where are y'all going? Like, we just started the work. I'm like, bye. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired men and they followed him. Mark chapter two, verses 13 and 14. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Mark chapter three, verses 13 through 19. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. And he appointed the 12. To Simon, he gave the name Peter, and to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. There's a theme here. I hope you're catching on to it. Jesus keeps saying what? Follow me. Follow me. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37, calling to the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? And there once again, you have Jesus saying, you have a choice to make, and the choice is whether or not you're gonna follow me. Or if you wanna put it in the language of Lenny Kravitz, are you gonna go my way? We all have a choice. There's a pattern in these passages. The reason I just wanted to hit you with it is you see this theme that is coming from Jesus that's more than just, hey, I called out and I said, believe in me. He says, I called out and I said to you, come follow me. This is your way of life, but this is my way of life. Come and follow me. See, there's a pattern in all this that's really important, and it was common in the ancient Near East, and the pattern is, is that the people that came and followed him became disciples of his. They put themselves under his teaching, and they not only put themselves under his teaching, they actually did the stuff that he did with him. That's what discipleship actually looked like. This wasn't a new idea in the ancient world either. The idea of a disciple, 
You have Socrates, and he discipled Plato. You have Plato, and he discipled Alexander the Great. I mean, Aristotle, and Aristotle discipled Alexander the Great. There was this handing down of what had been handed to them. It was a process. There wasn't anything new. And it got me thinking again. I mean, where would Daniel's son be without Mr. Miyagi? It wasn't going well for Daniel's son until he met that guy, right? And then he taught him to paint the fence and to sand the floor. Really, I still think Miyagi was getting some free labor there. But still. And you remember that moment where Daniel is like, all I am learning is how to wax cars and paint fences. And then Miyagi's like, that's it. And he says, come over here. You remember this scene for those of you that, how many of you have seen The Karate Kid? Can I, you remember this scene, Daniel's fed up. He's like, I am tired of giving you free labor here. I was here to learn karate because, you know, Johnny keeps beating me up. So how does this connect? And then they put in the drills, right? Everything, we're, gonna, we're going to do this. And it's all of a sudden, magically, by the way, he can block punches because he was under the teaching of a master. He was under the teaching of a master. Like I said before, you could probably think of someone that if you didn't have them in your life, and it could be a parent, it could be a teacher, but they functioned in this way for you and you would not be the same had they not been in your life. Here's the way that it worked back then. This is the way that discipleship worked. It really came in a couple of stages. Here was the first. Up until around 12 years old, kids learned uh, the things that you would kind of expect a kid to learn, reading, writing, arithmeticing. Uh, now, by the time that they got to 12 or so years old, they would have memorized the Torah. Now, that's impressive, because that means that they were memorizing Genesis through Deuteronomy. How many of you have done that? Let's see those hands. Exactly, nobody. Yeah, by 12. Now that also reminds us of an important point. You can do that. There was one time, it was really awesome. One time I was in Israel and I'm down by the Wailing Wall and uh, with a group of people and I look over to the right and this huge party starts processing around the corner. And I'm like, what's going on here? And they, there was this group of, of men and they had this kid probably around 12 or 13 years old. And they had him hoisted up and they were marching him in and they were screaming and they were singing. And then I look over to the side. I don't know how I missed it before, but there was this huge Torah scroll and it was made of silver and gold. And as I look over, I was like, wow, how did I not see that before? And then I was like, I'm just, I'm here. I'm gonna watch what goes down. They were bringing him down because he was at the point where he was becoming a man and they were celebrating. It was a rite of passage and they were celebrating this with him and they brought him all the way down on their shoulders and put it down and he steps down and he walks over to the scroll and in front of the crowd, he starts to, he starts to recite. He doesn't read it. And I went over to talk to a rabbi that I'd become friends with there in Jerusalem over the course of that week. And I said, man, that was pretty impressive. How much did that Torah scroll cost? Because it looks expensive. He goes, that one, I don't know, $35,000 American, something like that. There was, a, there was a rite of passage. Something had been, you are now becoming a man. This is basically stage one of discipleship in the ancient Near East. From around 12 to 14 years old or so, this is the part that was for the men only. There was a school that was connected to the side of the, the synagogue where they would memorize the entire Old Testament, the entire thing. And often, and most often, by constantly repeating it over and over and out loud with their master. 
You need to be thinking Yoda and Luke at this point, right? They would repeat it out loud until they had it absolutely down. They were also starting to learn a skill or a trade. And then if you were really, really lucky, there was this third stage in a dis- being, becoming a disciple. And it's after being 12 to 14 years or so, right after that, you would become an apprentice of a rabbi. And usually that would, that would happen at the invitation of the rabbi. You need to hold on to that thought. Because when I was, for example, supervising students that wanted to get a PhD, they usually had to come to me and say this, like I had to before. I had to go to the guy that mentored me through my doctorate, and I had, would you be willing to supervise me? That was the question that I asked. And guess what, my friends? Uh, Yes was not a guarantee. Because at that point, they would have seen me in doctoral seminars, they would have seen my ability to research, to write, and everything else, and sometimes they didn't want to waste their time. And they would say, no, I'm actually not gonna supervise you. And then when I became the professor, it was kind of the same thing. The students would come to me, I have this project that I'm really interested in, and I think you're the guy that I would like to supervise me in this, and I'm sitting there thinking, over all of the work that they had done, is this a person that I actually want to give my time to? This is kind of the third stage of what it looked like in the ancient Near East. It was like by invitation, is that making sense? And that was a big deal. If a rabbi said, hey, come and study under me, that meant come and become my disciple. You're gonna be following me. You would be interrogated about your knowledge of the Old Testament, as well as rabbinic interpretations of the Old Testament. You didn't just have to know the Bible, you had to know what the rabbis were teaching about all the different parts of the Bible. Does that sound like fun? Or does that sound like work? It's actually both. Because they they would master their trade, but the goal in all of this is to become what the teacher is and to do what the teacher does. That was the goal. And here's what this means, and I love the way John Mark Comer says it. He said that means for us as followers of Jesus, and you remember in all of Mark, come and what? Follow me. Come and follow me. He said, that means we spend time with Jesus so that we can become like Jesus, so that we can do what Jesus did. Did you notice that when he had pulled the disciples aside and he had poured into them and trained them, he says, now I what? Send you. And you can proclaim and you can cast out demons. In other words, I'm handing off this authority to you now. You can go. They had already been walking with the master and so he cut them loose. But there's this awesome part in Mark chapter eight as we read verses 34 to 37 because Jesus does something very, very different. He says, whoever wants to follow me. Did you remember before what I said when it came to the process of becoming a disciple of someone in the ancient Near East? It would be like a rabbi coming up to you and saying, I wanna work with you. Jesus just turns it completely around and he says, whoever wants to come, come on. That means you could be poor. That means you could be uneducated. That means that you could be, um, you could be the outcast of society. It means you could be rich. It means you could be from the area or not from the area. His word was whoever, whoever wants to follow me. But then he says this, but if you're gonna do it, you're gonna have to deny yourself. You know what's interesting is For as great of a teacher as Jesus is, that phrase right there simply does not fit with the American view of what your life is about. Because in the American story, 
What you should be doing is actualizing yourself. Jesus says, no, to become great, you're going to have to deny yourself. It's the complete opposite. It, it reminds me of this story. Some of you know Steve Jobs. For those of you that have an Apple phone, you probably know this guy. And there was this moment where he went to a guy named John Scully. You may not know John Scully. At the time, he was the president of PepsiCo. And they were sitting in a balcony. They were overlooking uh, New York's Central Park. Jobs had been meeting with Scully for like weeks at this point to try to pull him away from Pepsi to come to Apple. And Scully just wasn't buying it. He just wasn't convinced. And finally, Jobs looks at Scully and he says this. He says, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to come with me and change the world? That's a pretty good line, <laughs> right? Do you want to sell sugar water the rest of your life or do you want to come with me and change the world? And Scully said in that moment, that was like a gut punch to me. But Jesus is saying the same thing. Do you wanna live for yourself or do you wanna follow him and change the world? It's the same thing. Because the call of Jesus is about you coming to the end of sin in your life and coming to the end of yourself so that you can experience him the way that you were meant to. And what that means is, is that this is about training and it's about practice. Did you notice that in the stages of being a disciple in the ancient Near East, you put yourself under a master so that they can make you something that you're not? You're gonna have to put yourself under the master so that you can become what he created you to be. It's about training and it's about practice. Let, let me give you an example from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Paul said this, he said, don't you know that the runners in a stadium, they all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, which was basically like a pine wreath. I mean, after a while, it was just dead. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we do it to receive an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one who's beating the air, which basically means I'm not really doing anything. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Do you see a theme here? Self-control and discipline. It's all a part of what Jesus has called us to in following him. Now the Greeks, because he's writing this to the church at Corinth, there were two different games. They had the Olympic games, y'all probably heard of that. And then they had what were called the Isthmian games. Uh, these happened like every other year. Contestants, they had rigorous training for 10 months and it took incredible self-control and self-discipline for them to accomplish the task. They were running to receive a prize, right? Notice what Paul says, borrowing from the games. He said, I discipline my body to bring it under strict control. I control it, it does not control me. I become the master of it, it is not the master of me. It reminds me of something C.S. Lewis said. He said, I want you to imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to build that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. 
But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. That's what this process is like, is that there's the old part that has to be literally taken out of the house and it has to go and he puts something brand new inside and he makes you new. But here's the difference. Whether it was the Olympics or the Isthmian Games, those athletes, they were competing against each other. In 1 Corinthians 9, you're competing against yourself. You're competing against yourself. You're not competing against me. You're competing against everything that is inside of you that is keeping you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And that's a race that only you can run with the power of his spirit who indwells you. I'm reminded of this because the process is not fun, but I thought about this great quote from Muhammad Ali. He said, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit. Suffer now, and the rest of your life, you'll be a champion. Never liked training. By the way, totally agree with Muhammad Ali. Totally. When I was a pitcher, I remember the coach saying, first, bring your track shoes. We'll worry about pitching later. Because they wanted me to be in such great shape that I could be at the end of the game throwing with the same velocity as when I started because my body was whipped into that kind of shape. He said, bring your track shoes first. Then we'll work on your pitching. You get the idea? Self-discipline, self-control, bringing things under control. It reminded me of the great swimmer, Michael Phelps. Y'all probably saw him, many of you anyway. He had a pretty rigid daily schedule. Uh, By the way, just so you know, he had 18 golds and four silvers. That's not too bad for a guy. At 6 a.m., he would wake up. From 7 to 9 a.m., he was swimming. And don't need, you don't need to be thinking kind of these nice little laps around the pool. It was an extremely aggressive swimming regiment for two straight hours with no break. From 9 to 10 a.m., he got out of the pool. He immediately went into the weight room, and he lifted weights. He's burned a lot of calories at this point. He's got to take good care of his body. So for two hours, he went to eat. It almost became a joke because people covered him eating because he would slap in five, six, seven thousand calories in this time. And here's why. is because he wasn't done, but first got to take a nap. So from 12 to one, he took a nap. And then for two hours, from four to six, he was back in the water with a hardcore swimming regimen. Finally, he gets to stop. And so from six to eight, he's got to pack in another five or so thousand calories because he's been burning a ton. And then from eight to 10, he spent time with Nicole and his son, Boomer. Great name, great name. Finally, I'm gonna get to crash. They said he was probably eating somewhere in the range of 10,000 to 12,000 calories a day just to offset the calories that he was burning because his workout was that intense. What I was doing was watching stories about Michael Phelps having an intense workout. And I'm eating popcorn and cheese and going, man, that's intense. (laughs) However, (laughs) 
One of us is an Olympic champion 18 times over gold and four times silver. And it's me. No, I'm, kidding, I'm kidding. It's him. It's him. He was willing to do what it took to accomplish greatness. Not just watch somebody doing what it took to accomplish greatness. Michael Phelps. But much of his success, because there is a rest of the story, much of his success comes to a guy named Bob Bowman. How many of you have ever heard of him? Bob Bowman was his coach. He was his coach. Or in the language of what we're talking about today, he was his rabbi. He was his teacher. Bob was already a vetted coach when he first met Michael Phelps in 1996. And he decided to invest his time in him as an 11 year old because, and I quote him here, he saw the competitive nature, he saw focus, and he saw the build that was necessary for a future Olympic champion. So Bob ends up describing Phelps as one of the, and I quote him again, he's the most goal-oriented person that I had ever met and believes that what separated athletes at an elite level was what happened here, not just what they did with their body, but what happened here. There was a tactic that Bob Bowman taught uh, and it was visualization. He wanted him to be, or whoever he was training, to be able to see what they were doing so well that they, even, even if, and there came to a moment, if something had happened in the race where you could not see, you could still see because it was that ingrained in you how you do this. And don't you know it, in 1996, or excuse me, in 2008, they're in the Beijing Olympics and Michael Phelps is swimming the butterfly and his goggles broke. They broke. They fill up with water. He cannot see anything. And for the last 75 meters, he swam without being able to see where he was going. Did you know that? It's amazing. And I know you're wondering, he won the gold. And in fact, not only did he win a gold, he set a world record. And he said, this was the difference. The difference wasn't just what I had done in terms of my self-discipline, although that was a part of the story. It was the ability of somebody outside, like Bob Bowman, to look at me and to train me because he could see the things that I couldn't so that if something happened around me, I could still finish the race well. That's why you need a rabbi. That is why you need a teacher. That is why you need a mentor. You put yourself under the teaching and the practices of someone that just has it better than you so that you can do it like them. Like Mike. I like to be like Mike. There's one thing that we're gonna focus on as we close. And I'm not gonna give you three steps today. I'm actually gonna end with a question and I want you to answer this for yourself. The question is simply, what is hindering you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus? What is hindering you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus today? Uh, I gave some thought to this for myself. I try to be fair. The sermon goes through me before it ever gets to you. And I had to think, going like back into a time where I had kind of walked away from Jesus and then I was like, I need to take Jesus more seriously. This was a little bit later as a teenager. And one of the first things I had to do was change the people I was hanging out with. And it's like 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived, bad company corrupts good character. I had to rethink some things. Who was I gonna surround myself with? 
Um, and it wasn't to mean that I was gonna be mean or dismissive of the people that I had been around, but what it did mean is, is for the people that were going to invest in me the most, I needed people that could take me to the next place I needed to be. I had to rethink some relationships. Um, I had to rethink the way that I was using my time. I've shared this with you before, but I started going and meeting with grown men at a fire station at 5.30 in the morning. And we would start by asking questions and going around the table, and we had to answer the questions. There was no out. And they were tough to answer, and that was between me and those guys. But I needed those guys at that time in my life. I'm just giving you two examples of things that I thought through this week, and I actually thought through more, because I wanted to answer the question that I'm posing to you. What is it that is hindering you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus? So as we go into a time of prayer, I wanna remind you of something that's beautiful from scripture because you have this promise in the word and in Psalm 19, 13, it says, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me and then I will be blameless and cleansed from a blatant rebellion. Sometimes, you know what God is asking for? One is for us to be honest with ourselves. Second, for us to be honest with him and then just ask him for the help that we need. He's here. For those of you that follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you and has given you every measure of power that you need for fullness and holiness. You have it. Maybe you just need to claim it this morning and call it what it is. That's the question that I have for you. And then second is this. What commitment are you making today so that you can be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. It's not just what's hindering me, but what commitment are you making today so that that can come about? This is your Michael Phelps moment. It's like his coach said, the most goal-oriented person that I have ever seen. We need to be goal-oriented people with regard to our discipleship in Christ. We do. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.